Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of St. Peter's United Church of Christ in Ferguson, Missouri. This week, Senior Pastor Patrick Chandler reflects upon Mary's anointing of Jesus just prior to the Passover and the objection Judas raised of such wasteful and reckless behavior on the part of Mary, claiming the perfume Mary used could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. Jesus responds in part with a difficult saying, You will always have the poor with you. Listen as Pastor Chandler proclaims, It is what it is, the fifth in our Lenten worship series, Breaking Cycles from Separation to Wholeness. Our text this week is John chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. To learn more about St. Peter's, you may find us on the web at www.stpeterschurch.org or on Facebook by searching St. Peter's UCC Ferguson. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you not, do not always have me. My father, whom you've heard me talk about many times over the years, my father whom I love tremendously, who I looked up to as a role model and in many ways still do, even uh, almost eight, over 18 years after his death, my father was a very flawed man. And he possessed a tendency to be very cynical from time to time. My dad was not a churchgoer, but he did, he did, to his credit, own a Bible. Now, not one that he often used, but he still owned it. That counts, doesn't it? He still possessed it. It still sat on, uh, on a shelf in his house. I guess thinking, as many of us do, that some by some theological osmosis, it would somehow sink into us just by its presence, but he owned it, probably because his second wife made him get one. In his final years, my father and his wife attended a small little backwoods country church, Baptist church, with her parents. And one does not attend a Baptist church in the South without having a Bible in one hand and a chicken casserole in the other. To do otherwise is not just bad manners, but it's also bad theology. I found his Bible when he died, and I opened it. And as one might suspect, the spine cracked and popped as they do on never-used, never-opened books. Yet for his never-opening his Bible, for all of his lack of biblical study and scholarship, my dad sure did love to quote the verse found... In John 12, verse 8, you will always have the poor with you. 
I am convinced that that was probably the only verse of Scripture that my father, Bobby Chandler, knew by heart. To my father, it was more of a political statement or even simply a statement of fact and life that one based um, in any, that was uh, simply a fact of life that one based less in any theological understanding of Jesus or God or stewardship or discipleship. I think oftentimes it was for him even an acknowledgement, even of uh, either of defeat or critique, as if to say it didn't matter what political party a person belonged to or even uh, an organization. It didn't belong what the person did or didn't do. Regardless of their motives or intentions, you will always have the poor with you. So basically, my father coined the phrase, it is what it is, before it ever became in vogue. To hear one say those words almost makes them sound apathetic and uncaring. Eh, it is what it is. And that's how it's just going to be. Every time I hear someone quote this verse from Scripture, verse, verse 8, you will always have the poor with you. I hear those words in my father's voice. Even when it's read by a woman with a British accent, I hear it with my father's voice. And I think, you simply can't just throw something like that. Some saying of Jesus out there, totally out of context. And then I realize, sure you can. People do it all the time, don't they? They just throw something that Jesus said out there into the world, out there into the air, regardless of the context in which Jesus said it, in order to fit their own attitude or bias. You can do it. You just shouldn't do it. And there's a difference. Then I would follow all of that thinking, all of that reflecting with a different thought, a scarier thought. What if my dad was right? What if my dad was right? What if his perceived cynicism was actually more reflective of what Jesus was saying at that moment within the house of Lazarus? What if Jesus was stating or even calling out the underlying apathy that we, those of us who have from the middle class on up, that that the underlying apathy that we possess towards the poor around us, especially the invisible poor. And by the invisible poor, I mean those we intentionally wish not to see. I think it's a possibility. I think it is a possibility. Jesus was a great teacher, especially in the ways that he could use symbols and images, parables and familiar situations. Jesus had this way of grabbing the attention of his audience, referring to items and issues that those around him would immediately recognize in his teaching. But then there are times, I think, I believe. When Jesus found himself not teaching as much as simply naming and claiming a reality that existed. A reality that existed, but still a reality that needed to be transformed to create an ideal, a new reality of life within God's realm. 
The first example of that that I often think of is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus is quoted as saying this twice in Scripture, in the Gospels. Once in Matthew as a part of the Sermon on the Mount, and then again in Luke. When I hear those words, it implies to me that our hearts follow our money and our resources. Our hearts follow our money. Our money goes first. Several years ago, a presidential candidate attempting to connect with his voters and perhaps even desiring to connect with those all-coveted, undecideds, in a debate, in a presidential debate, quoted Jesus as saying, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. He misquoted Jesus. Maybe it was in the heat of the moment. Maybe he had no idea what he was saying. Maybe it was some kind of outer body theological statement. Perhaps he was on to something. Because I wonder if in those words, Jesus was again stating, not the ideal. Not what we should be doing. Not how we should be following our living. But rather the reality of the human condition. Naming and claiming that we as humans, in fact, often place our treasure before our heart. When in fact, it should be our heart. That should come first. Within a life and within the kingdom of God. The realm of God. Within God's realm. We are not to be led by the material. By treasure. Rather it should be our heart. And our spirit. And our soul. That should be leading us. And our treasure should follow where our heart leads. Likewise is the saying of Jesus about the poor. That they shall always, always be in our presence. It is less about teaching us how things should be and more about convicting us because of how things are. The poor, those who are caught in a vicious cycle of poverty, they surround us constantly and their presence often leads us, leads the rest of us. To an unhealthy place. To an unfaithful attitude about their presence in our midst. Of course we should not read or interpret these eight words of John 12. Standing alone as if they were not connected to the other words in that same verse. Or even the other words within that same story. Jesus also reminds the disciples that they will not have him. Very much longer. As biblical scholar. uh, The late Gail O'Day. Reminds us. We cannot read this account of Jesus. uh, Jesus' anointing by Mary. Without calling into our memory. The final hours of Jesus' life. His passion. And the anointing of his body after death. Perhaps what Jesus is reminding us, as many scholars and preachers have concluded over the years, that one should place the spiritual over the material, that focusing our attention on Jesus while he is there in our midst is more important than the material things or even the circumstances of others. And in a way it makes sense. Especially if we recall the story found in Luke of Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his teachings as Martha serves from the kitchen. 
and even complains that Mary is not helping her. Martha, Jesus says, Mary has chosen the better thing. The spiritual over the everyday. Now there's just one problem with that interpretation. It makes it seem as though we have to make a choice. It makes us boil things down to either or. And when there is either or, there tends to be winners and losers. It seems to be in that interpretation that we have to make a choice. That we either have to choose Jesus or we have to choose the poor. And the problem with such an interpretation is that the reality is, the reality of Scripture, the reality of the Gospel states very clearly that it is absolutely impossible to separate Jesus from the poor. And it's equally as impossible to separate the poor from Jesus. Whether found in those He approached bringing hope and healing or found in the public in the public words, in the synagogues, or in the town squares, Jesus certainly sides with the poor in His teaching and His preaching, constantly challenging oppressive political and social systems that take advantage of the poor, that keep the poor poor. I have come, He says, to bring good news. To whom? To the poor. I have come to set those who are held captive free. Even those who are held captive by debt. Those who have mortgage payments. Those who have student loans. Those who have car payments. Those who have to go get payday loans. Those who cannot afford this month's utility bills. I have come to set them free. I have come to bring and proclaim a year of jubilee where all of those debts, where all debts are white, clean, and forgiven. Jesus has an affinity for the poor, and the poor certainly have an affinity for Jesus. He was a proponent of economic justice. Of leveling the playing field. Of lifting up the lowly and lowering the high and the mighty. Jesus extended an invitation to discipleship to a wealthy young ruler. But the wealthy man, he left, he left Jesus, he left Jesus' invitation without accepting. And he left, according to the gospel, stricken by grief. Because he had many possessions. Or perhaps even more accurately, the many possessions had him. The third way of understanding this text, the third way of perhaps living faithfully in response to this often misunderstood and misinterpreted text has been suggested to us. And I think there's something there for us to take home, something to chew on. Later this week, Dr. Lindsay Trazo of Princeton University, she holds a 
a Ph.D. in New Testament. Now, normally I would not simply just read someone's biographical information to you. However, in this case, in this particular context, I think her biography speaks directly to the issue we're facing here in, in, in John chapter 12. According to her bio, Dr. Trazo specializes in rhetorical approaches to ancient literature, especially biblical literature. And she's fascinated by the way readers find and make meaning in and through biblical texts and is interested in the practical effects that biblical interpretation has for people of faith in the world today, particularly those who have been ostracized, oppressed, marginalized because of certain readings of the Bible. I think she offers some insight. Dr. Trazo suggests that, the, that to best understand what is happening here, that we should, and those of us who are able should always do this, look at the original Greek of the text. Trazo says that the indicative form of the text, which in layman's terms simply means that the text indicates or states something like, you will always have the poor with you, matches also... The imperative form of the word, which is, in other words, a command for you to do something. To again put this more simply, it is faithful to read the words, you will always have the poor with you, to read them also as, always have the poor with you. What we have here is Jesus simply what we, what we interpret mostly as Jesus simply making a statement to us, it's also a command. Have the poor with you always. Keep the poor among you always. Keep them in your mind. Keep them in your heart. Keep them in your spirit. Keep them in your soul at all times. Keep the needs of the poor, the unhoused, the underfed, the malnourished, those without clean drinking water. Keep those as a focus of your faith and your discipleship, just as I do, Jesus seems to be saying. We have here a both and interpretation of a confusing text. And I personally, I love both and interpretations of texts. I love both and situations. When, when they can seem. This is a both-and interpretation of a text that allows us to see both the extravagant beauty and love found within Mary's anointing and the imperative, the imperative need to genuinely keep, and the key word here is genuinely because Judas was being anything but genuine in this context, to genuinely keep the needs of the poor, the disenfranchised, the marginalized as a priority of our faith and our discipleship. It not only speaks to the context of what was happening, but lines up also with the priorities of Jesus. And call me silly. But I just so happen to be one of those people who thinks that if something is a priority of Jesus, then it should be a priority of ours as well as followers of Jesus. Last week we heard the story of a prodigal. Of one who was reckless and extravagant and perceived as wasteful. 
And at the end of the story, I believe it was the father of the two sons who comes off as the prodigal in the story because of the ways in which he is extravagant and some might say reckless with the grace that he offers to his kids. Now, one of those children we know accepts the grace. The other child, we don't know what happens. It is the prodigal, the reckless and extravagant, and some might even say wasteful behavior of the father that leads us to a deeper understanding of what grace really looks like in human relationships. This week... I believe we have the story of another prodigal, and this time the prodigal has a name. Her name is Mary. This week, the actions of the prodigal, the reckless, extravagant, wasteful behaviors of Mary, leads us to a deeper understanding of love. Unconditional love. Wasteful, extravagant, reckless love. Love of neighbor. Our poor neighbor, our thirsty neighbor, our hungry neighbor, our unhoused neighbor. So in the end, as much as I hate to admit it, I guess my father was right. It is what it is but what it is what it is is something loving what it is is something grace filled what it is is something faithful what it is is something beautiful what it is is both a reminder and a calling a statement and a command yes we have the poor among us always, but also, yes, we as followers of the one named Jesus are called, are commanded, are expected to place the needs of those who are viciously caught in the cycle of poverty as a top priority in this new realm Jesus Christ embodied. There he was just a few days before the Passover. A reminder that the fate of awaiting him is drawing more and more quickly. And Jesus isn't worried about himself. He's not worried about himself in this moment at all. But rather he is concerned about the hurting and the suffering of those caught up in a cycle of life. Currently there are countless in our midst, in our communities whose lives are oppressed and even ruined by the religion of capitalism. Cycles of debt caused by greed and predatory lending. Cycles of hunger caused by food deserts, like the one in which we all live in here in North County. Cycles of homelessness caused by the apathy and selfishness and arrogance of those who look down their nose at the unhoused and see them not as human beings, not as beloved children of God, but rather as a nuisance or intrusion into our zones of comfort 
into our zones of tradition and into our zones of even arrogance. How do followers of Jesus respond to those cycles? How are followers of Jesus called, commanded, expected to respond to those cycles? Not by ignoring them or by willingly and knowingly participating in them, but by challenging them, upending them, destroying them, calling them out for what they are. And by responding to the needs of those caught within them with the same love, with the same devotion that a prodigal does. A wasteful, extravagant, and reckless love. Amen.